Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. Good evening, everybody. Something came up when I was recording a talk by Bob Massey at Pitt Street Uniting Church in Sydney a few months ago. Bob Massey is a Harvard economist and he was on a tour of the coal-rich areas with 350.org and he was begging Australians to leave our coal in the ground and to reskill our coal workers. It made me start thinking about green jobs. Someone up in the gods called out... She'd been up in the Hunter coal mines to talk to miners with a busload of uni students and she said they hadn't been able to achieve very much. Then Amanda Tattersall stood up. She's with Unions New South Wales and she said, Well, I think you've got the wrong attitude. You're not freedom writers. You can't go up there and expect things to change if you've got a condescending attitude. So tonight's show is about listening to the workers. If climate disruption is on the horizon and means we have to leave the coal, oil and gas in the ground, we need the cooperation and skills of those workers in green jobs. It looks like they're doing a lot by having all these little Mm. transition cities and Mm. swapping vegetables and stuff like that. But until (laughs) they tackle big industry, it's happening in first world countries. We don't have to wait until the end of capitalism. There's, There's sections in England where the whole community is put together and the government policy is allowed them to put their pool their money build a solar farm or wind farm and that provides the electricity for that community i met john parker from gippsland trades and labor council he recommended darren smell snell from rmit uni who did some research on reskilling the valley and then that led to a massive rally where i met dave karen from the earth workers co-op And he led me to Tim Gooden from Geelong Trades and Labour Council. Lastly, I spoke to John Rainford from Wollongong and he talked to me about how we need a lot more solidarity between groups. But before we hear those interviews, let's go back to the start with Amanda Tattersall. But there's not a conversation at the moment where, to be honest, my answer to your question, where the environment movement has the skills to sit down and have a conversation with the union movement. I'm sorry, like... I love you. I love the intention of going and talking to dirty coal miners, but it's so condescending, right? It's just so condescending. You know, you go up there for five minutes and then you piss off again, right? And it creates an impression. It's You're not the freedom riders. You're something else. But you could be amazing. But it's how you do it, not what you do, that's going to drive the change. And it's having the skills to be able to sit down with someone and go, so tell me about your life. Tell me about why you're a coal miner. Tell me about what life is like for you as a coal miner. Tell me about the kind of community you want for your kids. Tell me about what matters to you in the future. What do you want to see in Newcastle? What do you want to see in this world? How is it like working in a community that's covered in dust? And out of that conversation, exploring what you might have in partnership together. But it's how we build these coalitions that is going to be create transformative change, not just by being in the same physical place. I had the impression that John Parker had seen it all. Plenty of work for the doll schemes and plenty of plans for the valley valley blowing in and blowing out. He didn't want to blow this last chance to reskill the valley for the climate change emergency. John Parker, he's from the Latrobe Valley Trades and Labour Council. Now, I'm on a fact-finding mission about a transition plan for mining and energy workers in the Latrobe Valley. Uh, John, when Bob Massey came out here from the US group New Economy, his vision was for a huge rehabilitation project for the old mine pits and for us to start planning a post-coal economy. Do you have any ideas about that? Did that strike a chord with you? Well, we've, we've spoken about all those things, but of course... When you're looking at a region, and what we've done is we've looked out, looked at similar situations throughout Australia and throughout the world in conjunction with RMIT and other universities and organisations, they all come up with proposals which are around tourism or rehabilitation or minor revamping of the community activities. Mm. But they don't come up with long-term positive jobs which are are going to sustain the workers in the area. And and what happens is, of course, the most skilled workers, if you're talking about rehabilitating the mind, the the power workers are not going to be the ones who get employed to rehabilitate the mind. By and large, it's going to be the construction-type workers. Mm. 
and they're going to be only there for a short period of time mm. to do that rehabilitation, and then they're going to be they're going to pack up uh, and go. But the the mine workers, the skilled mine workers, will not stay in the area. They'll just move, yeah. and they take their families with them. And for every family that moves out of the region, we know that there is around three other service workers would lose their jobs as well. And so you you get a knock-on effect where you're not only losing the, the mine workers, you've got to also look at the service workers would, which lose their jobs. So the people's in the shops, you, the service centres, the, yeah. all those type of people lose their jobs. And... And so then you you get the economy collapsing at a different rate. And, mm. and so you can't just look at transitioning the mine workers. You've got to look at the whole economy and how you can create jobs which are going to employ service workers as well. So in other words, a high-paid job which is going to create people spending money. But unfortunately, they all always look at low-paid jobs and rehabilitation of the mine, the construction workers would get good money, but then the, the, the actual planting of trees and stuff would be a work for that old program. A company from overseas would do, do a training program, oh, yeah. uh, a dodgy training program <laughs> like what we've seen on Four Corners, yeah. and they'll get a heap of money and take that offshore, yeah. and then the workers would have, have left there'll be low-paid workers which, uh, and the, uh, the area starts to collapse because they just don't have the spending capacity to create the service workers. Mm. It's really a complex thing because nobody really knows what the jobs of the future are going to be, do they? And I spoke to people up in the Hunter Valley where they've got the same thing. They've got this sort of mines getting closed and then people put on contract and then, then they open again and there's a boom and then there's a bust. It's just a hard life and they were saying things like oh we should do things with renewable energy but it was terribly vague and they didn't seem to have an idea of sort of manufacturing yeah. industry that would replace those sort of yeah, uh, if, skilled if jobs. You talk, uh, if you talk about renewables and solar energy being created in the valley you have to you have to question why you would create solar uh, energy uh, facilities in the Latrobe Valley yeah. first. It's when, not the best sun when, spot when, is it? It, when all along the Murray, towns in Maljura, Swan yeah. Hill are all suffering from loss of income and jobs, where those sort of, you get a far better bang for the buck uh, with solar panels uh, nice. along those areas. What about so. the manufacture though? Because I think when we were talking the other day, just for the listeners, I met John in the street, in Swanson Street, and, um, and we were talking about, you know, like, the skills, the actual skill set that someone has is working in mining or working in the energy industry, the sort of transfer of those so that they can upskill to something else. Well, who's been doing some work on that? And that's what we're, we're doing that in conjunction with RMIT and our, our transition centre. Yeah. We're, we're all looking at those sort of work because we've got to look at it differently. Well, it sounds like you're talking about young workers and sort of unskilled workers, but according to Luke van der Merlin of the CFMEU, I read this in the paper the other day, uh, he said about 2,500 people are directly employed in energy and mining, and yep. he said they have a good future. What do you think? They have, because one of the issues in the Latrobe Valley is that, in actual fact, that the power stations will will obviously close, and they'll close down at a, in a, a, some form of staged way. When when do you think that will happen? Well, already Yalorn Power Station has closed one of its four boilers because the supply is is dropping, and so because the supply is dropping, there isn't the need or the the price is dropping. So these companies don't. There's no point in putting more power into the grid because it was driving the prices down. So by taking a boiler off, it had nothing to do with saving yeah. carbon. Mm. It was. It was about price, and mm. because they've taken it off, that means they run three boilers instead of four. So, do and you mean that the workers will have a good future while all of this lasts, which will probably be will last them out to the retirement age? But yeah, because the, the average younger ones age, coming up won't. Yeah, the average age is in the in the in the sixties. Yeah, oh, yeah. You know, fifty-five to sixty, and even now you'll find that uh, the companies will be poaching. 
uh, off each other to a certain degree, but certainly a lot of these mine, uh, the, the workers, are being uh, poached by interstate mining companies mm. wanting, wanting those skills, and those, those skills are transferred transferable mm. anywhere. And, and while you say, well, the mining industry in interstate is going down, but but the work the people that are going into the mining industry interstate as well they haven't got all the skills that the Latrobe Valley workers have got no. so they're very sought after the Latrobe Valley workers yeah. so they will have work but every time one of these workers retires and if they move which they do they pack up their superannuation and they go up onto the Gold Coast we lose the three service workers mm. so bit by bit the Gippsland region is dying by a thousand cuts oh I know there are vested interests hanging on to the idea of oh you know for the coal to keep have carbon capture and storage is one of their ideas or clean coal they talk about a lot but what do you think realistically are the alternatives for coal? Are there any alternatives? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I, I, what I say to people is don't get too excited about wanting to use the coal up now. So the world will be looking for, one, for carbon, for to re-enrich the soils which are being used up by the, by the crops. Yeah. Um, and they also will be looking for something that they can turn into oil. And we know that the brown coal can be turned into high-quality oils, mm. which which you need for even plastics and the stuff that we yeah. take for granted every day. Yeah. That was John Parker from Gippsland Trades and Labor Council in the Latrobe Valley. John mentioned the work with RMIT University, and so I asked Darren Snell about his paper called Reskilling the Valley. But he threw it back to me, asking what is beyond zero emissions putting on the table? Which made me wonder, whose job is it really to prepare for a transition away from coal? About climate change solutions, so I'm looking around to interview people who might be thinking ahead. Um, apparently Goldman Sachs has just said that thermal coal has reached the retirement age and China and India are fast-forwarding into renewables. And I'm not sure if the Latrobe Valley... Um, exports coal but is there any local pressure there to phase out the use of uh, brown coal for electricity? If we're going to talk about transition, transition to what? Are we talking about transition to um, yet greater uh, unemployment or are we going to talk about some sort of job creation? Mm. Well we had um, that fellow uh, Bob Massey out here from Harvard University and he was talking about an orderly exit plan for coal jobs and I wonder what would drive that? Well, yes, there's a lot of discussion and debate and certainly from a Gibson Trades and Labor Council perspective uh, over a number of years we've talked about the need for just the value uh, and we've had at different times when contract foreclosure was being discussed with the federal government lots of discussions about what that should look like and how we can manage that transition. Yeah. But yet it still raises significant questions about future jobs for, for the region, uh, the type of job, and questions about remuneration for jobs. Could you be a bit more specific? What's your vision? You know, what would you like to see? Well, when it comes to regional Australia, it's always, it's always a challenge uh, for any region uh, with regards to, to investments. You know, we, we know the history of Latrobe Valley is deeply connected to its resources, both coal and uh, forestry in particular. But yes, I mean, we have to talk about the need for new types of work, new types of industries, but it, it's a difficult, it's a difficult one that you can, you can put on the table and say, this is what's going to happen. Unless there's going to be some significant industry planning, government intervention, it's difficult to see what that future might look like. Well, say government was on side and there was enough pressure, for example, from climate change agreements, you know, say international agreements to phase out coal, leave it in the ground, as they say. Say the subsidies were taken away from fossil fuels. What would you like to see? I just, you know, you've done some research and you know the area. What would you like to see well, what's a positive I'm, I'm view sort on of, it? I'm sort of curious to put it back on on you. You're you're representing which beyond, group? Beyond zero emissions. 
Yeah, well, zero emissions um, likes to talk about a future without coal, and that would be a beautiful future, and, and it's certainly a future which the world economy needs to certainly consider. And the the challenges of, of moving to that, while also assisting carbon-exposed regions like the Latrobe Valley, is the penultimate challenge. It is. Well, everyone around so the, the question world... Is, so the question is, for an organisation like yours, what are you putting on the table? Well, this is not one of our projects. That's why I'm asking you. I, I am interested in it because all the... You know, we, we've done a lot of um, research on other areas like transport and stationary energy, but we haven't actually done the work because that's why I've come to you. And, like, just before the last, last state election, I interviewed Lily D'Ambrosio, and now she's the energy minister, and apparently she's keen to diversify the Latrobe Valley economy. And I wondered, does that mean that the state government would be investing in renewable energy projects, for example? What sort of renewable projects are we going to have in a, in a region like the Latrobe Valley? Are we oh. talking about, you know, manufacturing. it's not a place that you're going to put up solar uh, No, solar manufacturing, farms. manufacturing the wind turbines or manufacturing... We dark. also know that the, the manufacturing sector um, in this country is struggling. So, you know, it's not an easy transition to retrofit somebody that's going to potentially lose their job in a in a power station into aged care or, or no. you know, okay. uh, becoming a social worker for, for increasing numbers of unemployed people. Dave Karen was carrying a giant hot water tank with a mate down Swanson Street and I caught up with them. That's why I'm puffing a little bit in this audio. Dave Karen uh, was the founder of Earthworkers Co-op and he has tried to inject some practicality into the debate. Dave filled me in on how they are actually creating green jobs. Okay, I'm just in Melbourne City and I found Dave Karen from the Earthworker Cooperative, so I'm very lucky to have him to talk. I just want him to tell me a little bit about the how far we're up to in the transition to green jobs, especially for the Trove Valley workers. Well, from our perspective, from uh, the point of view of Earthworker Cooperative, um, across all of the carbon-dependent areas of Australia, uh, you know, our, our, our task is to, to put the manufacturing, the green manufacturing jobs in place especially because at 80% service sector our economy is built on sand. Um, if we were to put service sector green jobs in place then really what we're going to do is build a, our strategy to, we, we would be building our strategy to deal with climate and the climate emergency um, on a, a, a greater than 80% service sector economy. Greece was at 60% service sector jobs before its collapse. We're now in excess of 80%. So putting the green jobs in place in manufacturing is crucial so that we start to uh, you know, make the things here we need and especially the renewable goods. That's the thing we're focused on. So then the question is, well, um, how do you compete with the overseas goods? The question of the market. So for us, that's why we've instituted a policy where um, Earthworker clause can be put into the enterprise agreements that unions negotiate with employers so that as part of the workers' wage rights they can take the solar products that are made here um, or about to be made here because some of the things we distribute at the moment are made overseas but we've won the rights to make them here and so we're starting that process. So, you know, I guess where we're at, well, the Everlast factory that makes the stainless steel tank uh, was headed for closure. Uh, we've now saved that factory and all of the jobs in it and it's become Eureka's Future Workers Cooperative. So we've actually now gone past the, 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 the point where it's a great idea into the real world. Uh, we're in a number of union agreements now. Uh, we've got to get into more um, so that that massive service sector, all of those service sector jobs can, with the support of unions of course, because this is the only way it's going to happen, uh, that can, can then provide the, uh, that, that alternative collective market for the Australian-made goods. How much support do you get from other organisations like the ALP, the ACTU, um, state government? Well, we've uh, got uh, our, our primary backers, of course, are unions. So there's a unanimous resolution out of the Victorian Trades Hall Council uh, to which all the Victorian unions are affiliated. Um, uh, supporting Earthworker in all of our endeavours. 
So uh, we've got meetings going on at the moment with the Victorian State Government. Um, we've heard very supportive noises from them. So it's a matter of now working out how everything fits. Um, what is the role for government, for instance, in this process? Uh, you know, and, and for us, well, the answer to that is um, we're not seeking for them to employ. We're not seeking for them to, um, to, to you know, to pay for it. Um, what, what we're wanting, I guess, is a, a, a new sort of social sector eco economics um, infrastructure to be put in place, where we can where we can actually um, have government create the work for us. So things like procurement, that sort of thing. Well, a lot of people are talking about now the collapse of the coal industry, the price has gone down. In New South Wales, they're still opening new mines. Whitehaven coal's been bulldozing through a forest. People have locked onto all the machinery, but they're going to persevere with that, even though everyone's saying financially they'll go bankrupt. Um, is there talk of that in Latrobe Valley of diversifying, you know, so that people have skills for a diversified economy, not just based on coal? Is there a lot of support and talk and, um, you know, people, are people putting it on paper like a blueprint? Well, yeah, the, um, uh, uh, John Parker and uh, workers from the Gippsland Trades and Labor Council partnered with RMIT and did a lot of work around what existing, what, what were the existing jobs in the valley and where, where those jobs might go. Um, so that sort of work has been done, is being done. Um, yeah, the question is then finding the practical ways forward with that. Thank you very much. That's thank Dave Kerrin, who's been a great friend of Beyond Zero Emissions. I've heard him talking about heat pumps there. And thanks very much, Dave. Thanks, thanks. Nice to see you. Someone in the rally put me on to Tim Gooden. He is not in the Latrobe Valley. He's the secretary of the Geelong Trades, and Trades Hall. We talked about carbon fibre jobs and how we don't have to wait for the end of capitalism to get moving. Tim Gooden now. Um, He's with us tonight and uh, I'd like to ask him about creating jobs for the post-carbon economy. His work has been about future-proofing Geelong and a carbon reduction plan. So hello Tim and tell us about your work. Oh, g'day, how are you going? Good, thanks. Well, I'm, I'm actually with Geelong Trades Hall, the Secretary of Geelong Trades Hall, but we're signatures with um, uh, the Geelong City Council and a number of um, peak industry groups and employers in Geelong. And for several years now, Geelong has been developing um, and mapping a plan to reduce its carbon footprint uh -huh. and what that would mean for, for, for business and how, it, how we would go about it. So they've been running um, a number of programs, as well as sustainability house, commercial building retrofits to reduce energy, yeah. as well as looking at new industries and supporting uh, companies that are moving into renewable energies, uh -huh. uh, technology, uh, plant and equipment, uh, manufacturing techniques. And then, of course, the, the big player in Geelong also is um, Deakin University. Uh, that have been working very hard on uh, carbon fibre, um, nanotechnologies, in conjunction with some of the big employers in, in Geelong as well. Oh, well, look, I don't know about that. Um, tell us a bit about those uh, job opportunities that might come from what Deakin University is doing. I don't know about nano or carbon fibre. Well, the car carbon fibre, um, the Carbon Nexus Centre out of Deakin University has been developing for a number of years now. Um, uh, how carbon fibre uh, works. What is the, it first? I don't the, know what the, it is. The information that's been gained out of that has created at least two or three uh, companies, oh. a couple of companies in Geelong. One is um, Carbon Revolution, mm -hmm. which is now employing people uh, to make uh, wheels for, for cars um, on, on, a, on a mass production basis. I've yeah. been doing it for a few years now on a specialised basis. And then um, the other one uh, is uh, Quick, Quick Step, which is uh, the, the process in the carbon fibre production where the fibre, um, after it's been made into matting, it gets put into, basi basically it gets put into a kiln and um, um, pressed into a solid, uh, solid piece, if you like. Mm. Uh, that company is now starting up. In, um, in, in breakwater and are starting to employ people. Yeah. The, 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 only, the, pro the problem with all of the um, moving into renewable energies and, and, and um, modern materials is we all want to do it. We know that the planet needs to, for it to happen. Mm -hmm. Gov governments are very reluctant to, um, oh, to, yeah. to, to do it um, on behalf of business, etc. 
Um, well, that was my next question. Oh, go on, yeah. the, um, we saw a film the other night called Surviving Earth, and Tim Flannery was in it. <clears throat> and he oh, said, yeah, "There's, you know, he said there's a window of opportunity this decade where we can scale down our use and export of coal and gas." Or the alternative is that they'll be overwhelmed by galloping climate change. And I know the leadership isn't coming from the capitalist class. They'll be, you know, the last ones to get on board. So I wonder what workers can do. Well, a, cu a couple of the interesting things have been uh, some of the campaigns run in the trade union movement, um, particularly with the ETU. Uh, a number of years ago, developed a plan for Victoria and did a lot of research and, and, and developed a paper for renewable energies and making um, uh, components for windmills, etc. here in Victoria. The ACTU has developed a plan around um, green jobs. But on the ground, one of the best examples would have to be uh, Earthworkers um, co Cooperative around solar, uh, solar hot water for homes. Yeah. You know, solar hot water is not a new invention. No. But um, bringing, all, bringing the Australian components together and having workers manufacture it and have workers gain access to it, particularly the workers who can't afford it, so bolt-on systems or systems that, where they have, have it installed because of their enterprise agreement at work, yep. part yep. of their employment conditions. So quickly getting lots of workers access to solar, uh, solar hot water, and having that done through a cooperative where all that money goes back into the community um, rather than just off to the BHP boardrooms in yeah. the Mediterranean or yeah. somewhere. Well, look, and we spoke um, to Dave Karen uh, from the Earthworker Co-op and he said that uh, we've got to create manufacturing jobs. He said service sector jobs are like building on sand. Do you agree with him? Uh, well, what was the last thing he said? Sorry. Service sector. He said, you know, you can just replace this by people in the service sector but that's like building on sand he was really keen that we just find some way to bring back a lot more manufacturing jobs oh yeah we, we, the, ed, the education in the service sector is not going what creates wealth in australia is making things mm. um and value adding uh that wealth has to be generated in the first place before any of the other bolt-on um, services can, can, can happen in society mm. and, uh, and that's what we're severely missing um, it, it will take it will take a major intervention by government um, it will t and for that to happen it will take a major push yeah. by workers to demand that things happen rather than at the moment um, waiting for capital to re disinvest in its old fossil fuels and reinvest in, in, in modern stuff. Yeah. Um, it is starting to happen, but it's not going to happen quick enough. No. And, um, and that's why we need to... And, and governments always say, oh, but it's got nothing to do with that. Um, you know, we, we're hands off. It's a, it's a free market society. Oh, well, that's irresponsible. No, no trouble in making all the t factories retool for war. Yeah. Um, World War One, War Two. Well, World War Two. Geelong Ford was making tugboats and aeroplanes. Yeah. You know, within months of the war breaking out. So they they can they can do it when they want to. And I think that um, the the issue around climate and renewable energy is such an emergency mm. um it's more of an emergency than any war and mm. government should um should intervene and intervene now well that's really good you're putting a lot of heart into this and it's obviously you know the push has to come from the mass of people who know you know in places like the coal rich regions like hunter valley and latrobe valley you know well those jobs are going to be on the line so you have to reskill the people so they don't all just go away mm. um uh, but also like places like Geelong and in South Australia where big industries have suddenly been closed, you know, and you, you know, you have to have this creativity, you know, you have to yep. come up yep. with the plan. I think governments will move if they get enough pressure, but I think I want to hear what the, the actual blueprint is, you know, how Beyond Zero does these blueprints of, you know, what the transport system might look like, what the energy, well, what, what do you think the jobs well, transition would look the, like? Part of implementing any plan is that, well, at the moment, different groups, different interest groups manage to uh, influence things at different rates. And at the moment, it would be fair to say that a lot of the, the government is happy to spend money on little things like transition city, community markets, gardens, oh, yeah. um, the, the odd... Um, 
uh, incubator for a couple of re renewable energy type companies, mm -hmm. but they're mostly about in installation companies or green electricians. Mm -hmm. um, the, the governments are not prepared to spend money on the big push. And it, it looks like they're doing a lot by having all these little mm -hmm. transition cities and mm -hmm. swapping vegetables and stuff <laughs> like that. But until they tackle big industry, um, and, and uh, it's happening in first world countries. Like we don't have yeah. to wait for the end of capitalism. There's, there's sections in England yep. where the whole community is put together and the government policy has allowed them to put their pool their money, build a solar farm or wind farm, and that provides the electricity for that community. Um, and but where where it's not happening in, in Australia is that the the three big um, wholesalers of electricity are blocking or, or lobbying the government to block anything where communities can generate their own power. Yep. Um, that those those type of initiatives that we could have big leaps and bounds. Yep. Um, government policies preventing that. It's not because people aren't demanding it. It's because at the big end of town, their investments in fossil fuel. Um, they've got the ear of government, mm. and at the moment they're winning, and we need to knock them off yep. um, with a much stronger campaign and have governments more accountable to the community yep. if, if, if it's going to change. Yeah, well, there were, I think, 40 or 50,000 workers in the street last Wednesday in Melbourne, so that was pretty impressive showing of people yep. and put a bit of push before that and put it into a blueprint that, you know, is, is a really kind of a vision for the future because lots of people say it's a not just a... Well, climate change is very frightening, but, uh, you know, it's a positive change for people's health and for lot, in lots of aspects in society if we do go into a post-carbon industry. Well, I think we've got another opportunity this year is the Paris talks are coming up. Yeah. Yes, Copenhagen was a failure and yep, yep. last one in South America, but I think it's going to all come back on the agenda now. Yeah. The cost of electricity and privatisation has gone through the roof. Yeah. Um, it's clear the more every day goes by, there's more and more evidence about climate change yeah. um, uh, that that is is finally silencing the the the, the dissenters, if you like, yeah. um, and and hopefully convincing most people in in government. Um, I think this will be this next period leading up to December after the Paris talks is that we need to um, mobilise with our counterparts in the US and and, and Europe. Um, to get first world governments to adopt a, a real approach to reducing carbon. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like the, the Rockefeller Institute that made all their money on oil and so forth finally come out now and said that they're changing their business plan to move away from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Yeah. Uh, now, if yeah, they they're can seeing see the, the, the advantage in the wall, it. Yeah, they can see the advantage to, the, to uh, themselves they in know, that. They've got their own, they've got their own <laughs> scientists. They know we're well, well and truly into post-peak oil. Mm. Um, they're already selling off the oil plants um, and, and so forth. Um, if we don't make governments push quicker... Than, uh, than big business, then the planet may not be able to um, be, be sustainable. No. Look, just one last question. Uh, we're talking to Tim Gooden from the Ge Geelong Trades and Labor Council. Tim, you mentioned the ETU and the ACTU putting out reports, but um, what's the problem? I mean, some workers are still getting a lot of money out of coal and gas and the, let's say, carbon-intensive yep. industries. Are they pulling back because they've got a vested interest along with the people who own the companies or is there some sort of top level union where people realise no, they've no, got not a... Not necessarily. Like if you pick any social subject, unions aren't running the country. No. Um, and we're not the owners of, um, of business or, or production. No. We, we represent the workers that are enslaved to those industries and we try and make the, the, their, their lives as, as best that we can. Hmm. Um, of course, unions have a social conscience and, and, and do try and build, build for the future for, for all workers internationally. Yeah. Um, but it's compromising, but, isn't but it? There, there's, no, there's no basis for saying, well, unions are blocking certain things because their members will, their, their, their members will get the sack, you know. No. But we're always trying to come up with better ways, better job conditions and better employment prospects. Yep. Um, for, for all our members, and I think there's a realisation that one day all workers will be working in a renewable energy um, s s sector, and well, a lot of the old industries, as 
as they have done, um, we'll, we'll wither away on the vine. Thank you, Tim. That's all the time we've got for this, but I'm really pleased to hear such a positive message from you. And I thank, thank you. Thanks very much. was dying if they said this on the news if they would clarify the picture instead of seeking to confuse you could see the ice caps melting if you could watch the oceans rise you could see the consequences right before your eyes if you knew the kids were dying if you could look inside the river where their food comes from filled with cyanide if you could hear the parents pleading if they were looking right at you you could see the anguish in their hearts what if you knew Get out of your SUV Would you hit the streets And fight for all our lives Would you hold your ground When the stormtroopers arrive If you knew that the whole planet Depended on what you do now Would you take them in With the speed our times allow If the pundits told the truth For just a week or two And real life was shown on TV What if you knew so all these people are working on preserving and creating jobs as we decarbonise our economy. But what are the big corporations doing? Are they reskilling their workers or rehabilitating their mines as they face falling coal prices? According to Guy Pearce in his book Big Coal, Australia's Dirtiest Habit, I quote now, he says... Rio Tinto has not only vowed to get tough with its unionised coal workers, but it has, it has foreshadowed extending its Mines of the Future program, it's a robotics program, into coal operations. That means driverless haul trucks, driverless trains, robotic drilling rigs, automated loaders and remote-controlled shipping operations. That's all part of those plans. In 2008, Rio Tinto boasted that robotics had saved them from employing 900 more people. And I mentioned this to somebody. He said, oh, yes, when you consider you know, some of those mining jobs, it's over $100,000 a year, each one. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to put in a robotic, robotic train <laughs> driver? And you might, listeners, be thinking, well, Australia depends on the royalties flowing in from the uh, coal mines, especially these big mega mines promised for the Galilee Basin. Well, just consider, how much would one major disaster, exacerbated by global warming caused by the coal, wouldn't it wipe out all those profits? Think of Cyclone Yassi, for example. That was 2011. It cost $7 billion from the public purse. And then another $7 billion borne by companies and individuals. So all of this in mind, we're still trying to listen to people who know quite a lot about industrial change and how transitions are made. After all, we have made many transitions already. And the last person I spoke to was John Rainford. Just before his um, launch, the launch of his book, which was called A Short History of Social Democracy. John Rainford. Look, I wanted to talk to you because you've been a, a shipbuilder and a union official and I figure you've done some thinking about how workers can be protected as industries become outmoded. And I'm thinking here of the most urgent one in my case with uh, climate change in my mind all the time is the fossil fueled economy and anything to do with coal, oil and gas and more related to us, you know, like Newcastle, Hunter Valley coal mines down here, Latrobe, Valley, these workers are being rather tested and stressed by the thought of everything closing down. So what are your first thoughts about that? Well, perhaps if you know, I could talk about uh, my experience in Wollongong, which is a, uh, a steel city and uh, you know relies on the, on the uh, uh, coking coal um, mines around uh, Wollongong. Back in uh, 2008, 2009, when the um, global financial crisis uh, hit, um, the unions in uh, in Wollongong, um, Arthur Rorris, the secretary of the uh, Labor Council, came up with a uh, with a proposition to transition to to green jobs. Um, he then approached the New South Wales Labor Premier, and we did get funding for a for a study and produced a report. Um, called green jobs. Yeah, our experience has been that uh, you know 
this has to be pushed from down below. Um, And it can be done uh, locally. Um, For example, um, in 2009, when the federal government uh, handed out large sums of money for schools to um, to build covered outdoor learning areas, we were able to to team up with uh, a a company who had actually... um, rolled out uh, a program to uh, to build these colours in South Australia and the Northern Territory. Mm-hmm. And what they did, of course, was not just build the um, uh, rather you know, sophisticated yes. uh, sort of um, area. They put solar panels in there and they put the water reticulation in yeah. there. And the ongoing cost savings of that for schools were absolutely um, tremendous. And this is um, one... Can I just cut across you there? Uh, that's one example. But um, what I'd like to come back to is um, a lot of people think that, you know, in coal-dependent in areas, for example, this is what I'm sort of worried about. We want to close down the coal industry. We want to stop, you know, the heavy carbon emissions industries. But there's got to be a transition to something else. And I've heard people in the Trobe Valley sort of say, or oh, what would you city greenies know? You know, you've got all these radical ideas about a transition to green jobs. You can't do wind energy down here or we haven't got, you know, a solar resource down here, what other jobs? Well, you've just given an example there of alternative jobs, making those sort of outside school areas, buildings for those, the collars, but it doesn't have to be actually green energy, the the, the transition, but it's just that we need a plan for, you know, a government plan and an industry plan or, as you say, from the ground up, a workers' organised plan. But I think at the moment, there's. would you agree with me, there's a bit of a tension between the, what you might call the city greenies who, who have bright ideas and are worried about climate change and the people in the coal-rich areas whose jobs depend on it and they don't want the biggest employer in town to suddenly go away and abandon them without any uh, replacement, you know, diversified jobs for them. Yes, uh, well, for us in the in the Illawarra area, it's a bit different because the um, the the local coal mines uh, produce coking coal, which is necessary for steel. And the consensus uh, of opinion at the moment is that the steel, which is recyclable, um, has to play uh, a, a part in um, obviously enough in uh, building solar panels and uh, wind sure. turbines yes. uh, and so on. Yeah. But um, that said. It's a question of linking the capacity to do that to actually, you know, promoting the building of it and uh, and, and getting it done. And that's what's missing. Uh, there's apps, and it doesn't matter what the stripe uh, the uh, the government is, whether it's Labour, Liberal, or or anything else. There's there's, there's just no will there, um, no vision at all, um, you know, as to what the future uh, might look like. So, you know, we say that uh, that has to be built from down below. For example, one of the things. That that, uh, that we were promoting is uh, is in local council areas to have uh, committees set up that, uh, that are not unlike the uh, the neighbourhood watch committees, but yeah. uh, these committees would actually be looking at um, in you know small areas um, how we could uh, use solar energy uh, in the street lightings um, and and those sorts of things. Yes. Um, and it's you know it's that sort of pressure that's from below that's necessary because quite clearly nothing is going to come uh, from above. Uh, you're so right. You're, that, think, that's what we've got to work on. I think you're right there with councils because I know Beyond Zero has been working with some councils up in the Northern River, and uh, you know they declare they're going to go 100% renewable, like Byron Bay, and there's about 16 councils up that way who are declaring themselves, you know, on the path to 100% renewable energy for their energy. But I'm, I want to come back again to the working, the workers, you know, because it's this awful thing of skilled workers being put on the scrap heap. You, you know, it must have been terrible in Illawarra when that the numbers went down from the 20,000s to, what did you say, recently. But, I mean, I know it was terrible. I've heard about it a lot. But what... And it was the same in the Latrobe Valley when they privatised the electricity. You know, there was this yeah. huge hemorrhage of jobs there and people still remember it now and they do not want it to happen again. So what planning would you say have union and actual workers done to reskill and diversify in areas? Well, I'm thinking of the coal-rich areas. Yes, well, uh, all I know about uh, from a personal perspective is uh, is what we were able to do uh, in, in Wollongong and that was to, to put together a, uh, a comprehensive uh, plan that was called uh, Green Jobs uh, Illawarra. Um, so we, we set that out for government that uh, you know this is what uh, this is what should be done. 
but again, uh, it uh, it hasn't happened. So what really has to happen uh, with uh, with unions, I think, and with uh, and w- with workers. But it's the union leadership that must come first. And as I say, that that did occur uh, in the Illawarra. They've got to be talking to their members about uh, about these sorts of things, and they've got to uh, start talking to them about you know, what is going to happen to these industries. Yes. Um, a very similar thing happened, for example, in the, uh, in the shipbuilding industry in the, um, in the 1980s, oh. where most of the Australian shipbuilders went out of business. Um, and they were driven out of business by a superior um, Japanese uh, model. Um, so it, it was possible for Australia to do exactly the same that the, that the Japan, as the Japanese did and keep the industry. But again, it didn't happen. So it, it's a question of really of unions, uh, in my view, saying to their members, well, look, these industries are going to go anyway. Mm. You're going to be left without a job. Mm. You've got to be talking about, you know, not just your future, but your children's future. Mm. So, you know, we've we've got the expertise. We've we've got the people who can uh, draw up the plans, um, and we've got to get workers thinking about, the, you know, what what they're going to do, because the the jobs will go anyway, and uh, that I think is the key to it. And the the other important part i think is uh, is to have those workers uh, linking with the community with people in the community saying well look we want this in our area and uh, because you know, oh. this is what's good for us and this yes. is what's good for our there's children there's so much to be so done on. there's so much like we had uh, with the latrobe valley after the morwell fire you know that mine fire that raged for more than a month you know and people are still sick with that and yes. a lot of them said well we need to rehabilitate the mine that's you know 20 years worth of work uh, for a lot of people skilled work to actually rehabilitate that mine and make it safe and then you know revegetate and uh, that's those are one of the projects that you need some stimulus behind that but once it's going the, the workers are already there the future you know the young workers not the and, and someone told me the average age of the coal fire power station workers was 60 so you know they could be they can retire. They will retire, you know. And but as you say, the next generation coming up that need to have some view of where they're going. Yes, that's uh, that, that's that's certainly true. And uh, for me, the uh, the the key to it is uh, is linking with uh, people in the local community because once you talk to people in the local community about um, you know solar power and. Uh, you know, more efficient energy energy use and so on. They're all in favour of it. Mm. And they're able to come up with plans about uh, how it can be implemented uh, in their local area. So we need to, to, to you know, uh, get that push going to... Mm. Uh, to get the community and the unions linking up together and saying, well, look, this is the future. This is what we want to do. And I think unless that happens, um, you know, nothing much is, uh, is going to take place. And again, from the Illawarra, um, the example that, uh, that we see before our eyes is what the, a grassroots campaign, which started at a meeting in a, in a, in a pub in Thoreau, that led to 3,000 people uh, at the first uh, demonstration. And about four years later, we've got um, almost all of those... Um, uh, CSG licences in the water catchment area revoked. Yes. And if you look at the last uh, New South Wales election, yes. um, it, it was clear there, um, up in the uh, north of uh, New South Wales, that uh, there was such opposition to CSG yeah. that even National Party members started to say that, look, that should be rethought. Well, that's what um, I, was, I wanted to get onto that. The anti, I've had a lot to do with those people up there, and the anti calcium gas has brought together new alliances. Really, it's an interesting you know, country and city joining together. And I've met many people who were previously national and liberal voters who are so disappointed and that, you know, the wall has been taken from their eyes because they can see these politicians have sided with mining companies every time and they're digging up very good farming land. And these people are just well-organised and very angry and trying to use every lever of power they can but I don't think, you know, looking at the details about your book, I don't think they are yet ready to tear down capitalism, for example. And I wonder what you would say is the middle path to harness the energy of those sort of people as well. Well, as I say, I, I, I really do think that there needs to be links forged between the community 
and and the unions. Those links uh, existed in, in the Illawarra very, very strongly for a long, long time, and they've now been uh, rejuvenated across a whole range of things. So it, it's that that's, uh, that's got to happen in the first instance. As the climate gets worse, I mean, I'm down in Melbourne now, obviously, um, but uh, I understand that for the last two days there's been uh, cyclonic conditions um, uh, in uh, around Newcastle and Sydney and uh, and the Illawarra, and that's those sorts of uh, events are going to happen more and more and more often, and it's going to be the you know people themselves who are, who are going to get together and say, look, this has got to change, mm. and it's a it's at that point that you know they Quickly. need to link up with the union so we, we can have that united front uh, and and we can change policy we can mm-hmm. change what governments do without you know doing it at the ballot box we can actually do it by uh, you know out on the street if you don't struggle you lose oh thank you very much john look i have just one more question just for the listeners who might be interested in your book Mm-hmm. Um, a short history of social democracy. I'd like to know a bit more about that, and what does it have to say to people, well, people like me, who who I used to think capitalism was pretty much well tamed by social democracy. That's an, until recently. You know, I've become more involved with climate, and I can see the sort of vulture capitalism we've got now, which would take us to the brink and over. Indeed, that's true. Um, I mean, what the, that one of the reasons for uh, for writing the book was. Um, was to try and chart uh, what's what's happened because for our generation and the generation that uh, that came before us, there, there was um, you know an allegiance to you know, the social democratic model, you know the welfare state, full employment, and so on. Uh, but that's now gone, and unfortunately, there's been a conversion uh, of the Labour Party and of social democratic parties across the globe, uh, with the exception of the Nordic countries. Uh, there's been a convergence around this neoliberal model. You know what I uh, try to say in the book, or what I try to explain in the book, is how that happened, the period of time that that took, and and what we need to learn from that. And and what we need to learn from that, the most important thing we need to learn from that, the golden years of social democracy in the 1950s and 1960s, when uh, world production increased uh, fourfold, it came with a an enormous rise in, uh, in emissions. And that's what we're dealing with today. Now, the the challenge of climate change is unfortunately beyond the social democracy. So the purpose of the book was to try and get people to uh, to understand that you know that has to be realised, and it's from that starting point that we need to be building alternatives. Uh, a lot of people are saying that, that the kind of command economies like China are better positioned to do a quick transition. Oh, I think that that's true. Uh, yes, the, uh, they, they most certainly are. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think China's a, a special case with, with you know what's happened to it uh, in uh, in in recent years. The political challenge for us now is climate change, and that seems to be beyond the the traditional uh, politics, unfortunately. Uh, and there has to be a new politics uh, forged uh, in order to achieve that, because you know. <laughs> It's our children and our grandchildren who are going to suffer. As Guy Pearce says, we don't have the luxury of decades to end the reign of big coal, but much of its power rests on the illusion that we have no choice. We do. For showing us some of the choices, thanks go to Amanda Tattersall, John Parker, Dave Kerrin, Tim Gooden, Darren Snell and John Rainford.